I'm Ben, and I just became a gay uncle. I'm Tommy, and I've been Ben's gay uncle for 30 years. Are you ready for a double dose of gay uncle magic? Buckle up. Ask your gay uncle, 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 ask him all the questions that you have in your brain. Ask your gay uncle, you know that your uncle will do his very best to explain. He'll do his very best to explain. Hey everybody, welcome to our 18th episode. Hi! 18. I mean, what? Ask Your Gay Uncle is now officially able to buy lottery tickets and cigarettes. No longer a tween. (laughs) Ben, how are you? I'm good. I'm really good. Ben, ask me what chocolate I just ate. Oh, you just asked me how I am so that I would ask you about your fucking chocolate? (laughs) (laughs) You know me. Okay, what chocolate did you eat? I made some chocolate. Like, I didn't make it, like, grow it, make it. But I got some really good chocolate, I melted it, and then I added some coconut and cranberries. That sounds delicious. And was it dark chocolate or milk chocolate? Of course. I always eat dark chocolate. My mouth is still salivating from it. <laughs> if, if you hear me spit in the episode, everybody, you'll know why. Gross. Okay. Well, that, sounds, that does sound <laughs> yummy. You have to make me a bar for Christmas. Oh, nice. I will. So everyone, I want to let you guys know, uh, we are back on schedule with Wednesday episode releases. It was a little hectic. It was Ben's fault. Totally my fault. I will take blame. (laughs) Um, So look for us every Wednesday. And another reason we're back on Wednesday is because uh, our friendly neighborhood producer, Jackie, was starting to get really mad at us for having such crazy, unreliable (laughs) release dates. Sorry, Jackie. Yay, Jackie. We love you. We love you. We won't be bad anymore. Um, we're doing this episode a little differently. We're going to start with Gunkle of the Week, play a quick game, and then we have an interview with Walter Nagel, the partner of LGBT civil rights hero, Bayard Rustin, who just so happens to be our Gunkle of the Week. It's Gunkle of the Week. Bayard Rustin was an African-American gay man and Quaker who championed peace throughout his entire life. And he was a key figure in the civil rights movement. He was born in 1912 and had his first fight for social justice at age 16 when he was arrested for sitting in the white section of a movie theater in his hometown. You're a Quaker, right? I am a Quaker. You know, there are like card-carrying Quakers. Like, really, there are. I mean, you don't have a card, but you are either a member of a meeting or you are like an associate. And I'm an associate. I've never really joined a meeting, uh, but I believe in what the Quakers believe in. And it's very like peace oriented, no war. Yeah, nonviolence. Yeah. And that clearly plays a part of Bayard Rustin's life. He continued his fearless dedication for social justice and equality throughout his life until he died in 1987 while on a humanitarian mission in Haiti. Bayard was integral in creating organizations that made the civil rights movement happen. He helped organize the March on Washington movement. Now, this is not the 1963 march. This is the 1941 march to end racial discrimination in the military and federal training programs. Basically, they were saying, why should we go fight the Nazis for freedom when we don't have freedom here at home and in particular in the military? And so a week before the march was to happen, President Roosevelt agreed to meet their list of demands, so the march didn't have to happen. 
Oh, wow. So it was very successful. Oh, completely. The march, the march was so successful, they didn't even have to march. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, a decade later, he organized freedom rides throughout the South. What? Freedom rides? What is that? So, you know, this is like the 50s, mid-late 50s, and the Jim Crow laws were in full swing in the South. The Jim Crow laws were all about segregation, right? You've seen those photos, uh -huh. white water fountains, yeah. black water fountains, white seating sections, black seating sections in restaurants and movies, and it also happened on buses. And I'm sure you know about the Rosa Parks boycott, the bus Absolutely. boycott. Well, there was a federal law that said that you couldn't have segregated buses going across state lines. They had to be integrated. And as well, in this interstate travel, the cafes at all the bus stops had to be integrated. Uh -huh. But that wasn't happening in the South. So Freedom Rides were groups of interracial travelers that would ride the buses across state lines to bring attention to the Southern states that refused to adhere to that federal law and chose to follow the Jim Crow laws of, of um, segregation. And so police would show up and arrest these freedom riders. But before they would arrest them, the police would allow the KKK to attack the freedom riders. Wait, but how? I don't understand why the police were allowed to arrest them if they were just following the federal law. Well, the riders were following the federal law, but they were getting arrested because the police were following the Jim Crow laws of the South. In other words, the Southern states weren't following the federal law. And so to bring attention to that, Bayard Rustin created Freedom Riders. And there were thousands of these rides that happened across, across state lines. And people got arrested right and left. That's amazing. I mean, like, imagine being like, hey, I'm doing this protest thing where we're going to ride a bus. And just so you know, you're probably going to get attacked by the KKK. And you're probably going to get arrested in a state that's not your own. And who knows how it's going to turn out. You might get hurt a little bit or a lot. And you're going to have an arrest on your record. You know, but it's for a good cause. I mean, that's yeah. like, that's incredible. Something that actually Bayard Rustin said, and I don't have the exact quote. It's basically, it's not one person who did the civil rights movement. It's all the people who were a part of it who did it, who made it happen. Yeah. Bayard also organized a Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and Martin Luther King was the president of it. Bayard was the one who convinced King to fully adopt nonviolent protesting. Wow. So the story goes that Bayard showed up at Martin Luther King's house and was let in by, you know, armored guards and sat down at the table and said to him, you're not practicing what you preach. If you are wanting to do nonviolence, then you need to live in a home without guns and not have armed guards at your door because that's not nonviolent. Wow. And King agreed. And so he he got rid of the guns in his house and got rid of armed guards. And that's when King became fully committed to the idea of nonviolent protesting. So the Southern Christian Leadership Conference created by Bayard was an organization of churches that practiced direct nonviolent actions, basically peaceful protest and discrimination. And they were met full on with violence, attack dogs, fire hoses, spraying on school children, etc. Wait, so those horrifying images that we know so well of like black children being hit with fire hoses and all of that stuff, that's what this is from? 
Oh, yeah. And it was because of these protests and the filming of them that brought the world's attention to what was really happening in the South. Wow. And Bayard went on to organize the 1963 March on Washington, where Martin Luther King delivered his famous dream speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. And there's a, another great story of, of Bayard's genius and optimism. So there he is on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, surrounded by reporters. It's five in the morning and everything is set up. The stage, the microphone, speakers, signs, scaffolding. And there's not a single person there but Bayard Rustin and a handful of reporters who were basically saying, is it going to happen? No one's here. And Bayard pulls out a piece of paper from his pocket, opens it up, looks at it and says, yes, it's going to happen. Everything is on schedule. He folded up the paper, put it back in his pocket. And of course, the march did happen. And it was the largest march that had ever happened in the United States at that point. Over 250,000 people showed up and it changed the world. Wow. And that piece of paper was blank. There was nothing in it. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and this is like, at a t of course, you know, 1963. This is at a time when there was no like Facebook or phones or texting or email to no. organize this kind of stuff. This was no, literally he... word of mouth and letters. Yeah. He organized this march in like eight, eight weeks. Thousands and thousands of buses from all around the United States showed up. People came out of them very orderly. There were signs. It just, it went off without a hitch. And it was because of Bayard Rustin. And he was known for being a strategist and an organizer. And that's one of the reasons why King associated with him because he knew that he didn't have those abilities. He was an orator and he had the charisma, but he didn't have the strategic and the organizational um, qualities to make the movement have momentum. So he was like the oper he was basically the operations manager of like these immense historical movements. Yes, and he actually could have been the front front line. He was an incredible orator. He was brilliant. He had an amazing voice. He was a singer. And nobody knows about him because he had to be behind the scenes because he was arrested in 1953 for having sex with a man in a car. He was put in jail for 60 days and had to register as a sex offender. Was he, I mean, was this like a, was this like a minor that he was having sex no, with? No, what, no, no, he... not that kind of, he was having sex with a, a man. Uh, you know, and back then, it was the 50s, Ben. Back then, it was illegal to have sex with men, men with men, women with women. God, it's such a different time. You know, and so like the episode about Frank Khomeini, same thing happened to him. Mm. So because Bayard had to minimize his public appearance, he reinvented himself as a behind-the-scenes advisor to the civil rights leader. And his sexuality was used against him many times. The head of the NAACP refused to let Bayard be the front man for the March on Washington. And Congressman Adam Clayton Powell from Harlem said to Martin Luther King, if you keep associating with Bayard Rustin, I will say you two are lovers. Wow. They had organized a march at the Democratic National Convention in 1960. The platform didn't include civil rights issues. And so they were going to march at the DNC to bring attention to that. And the DNC sent this African-American to King to say, well, if you do that, here's what we're going to do. We're going to say that you and Rustin are lovers. So King 
caved in and distanced himself from Rustin. Wow. Yeah. He was an unbelievably brilliant man. And that's why he is my gunkle of the week. He changed the world and he wasn't doing it on the front lines. He didn't have to be seen. He didn't have to be in the front. For him, it was about the issue and it was about equality for all. And that to me is a great gay uncle. Yeah. I'm not a big history buff, but you'd think that even if you didn't know that much history, you'd know about someone like Bayard Rustin. Oh, absolutely. Like you, you'd think being so integral to all of this and being Martin Luther King's right-hand man, essentially, you'd think we would know about him. And, and this is what Rodney Wilson, you know, the Gunkle of the Week from two weeks ago, this is what Rodney Wilson was talking about when he said you have to teach LGBT history. Right. Because otherwise, <laughs> you don't know that these people exist. Right. You think, oh, well, it was Martin Luther King who did it all. Yeah. You can't, you can't be like afraid to mention the existence of gay people to your students. <laughs> yeah. You know? Right. So our episode page on our website will include links to some articles about Bayard's life, as well as a beautiful documentary called Brother Outsider. I have to watch that. Yes. Well, thank you, Tommy. Hmm. My treat. Okay, everybody. After the break, you will get to hear our interview with Bayard's partner, Walter Nagel. They met in 1977 when Bayard was 65 and Walter was 28. But first, a quick round of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Do you want to quickly describe it, Tommy? Sure. The colors of the rainbow spell out the word Roy G. Biv. Red, orange, yellow, green, indigo, violet. And so... Uh, you forgot blue. Oh, blue. Yeah, I did Roy Jiv. <laughs> you just flew <laughs> over my favorite color. Sorry, blue. Um, here's your category. Okay. Somewhere over the rainbow, crunchy things. <gasps> um, okay. Rhubarb. R. Rhubarb. Uh, rhubarb? It's crunchy. It's crunchy. Don't at me. It's crunchy. Okay. O. Um, uh, oy- oyster crackers. Okay. Sure. Why? Um, y- no. Oh, yeah. Why? Yeah. Why? You couldn't even, you didn't even know blue. You. T- I'm not trusting you to know the letters of Roy G. Biv. <laughs> why? Crunchy, why? Yeah. Oh, this is a hard one. Why is it always really hard? Why is really hard? Um, do you have any hints? So, like, think maybe young children's bones. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Pied Piper. <laughs> Crunchy. Come on, young child. I bet your bones are crunchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, G. Gravel is definitely crunchy. Yep. Uh, B. B. Barbecue chips. Okay. Okay. I. Uh, uh, ice. Ice is crunchy. Ice is very crunchy. Definitely crunchy. Uh, v. The. Vaseline is not crunchy. No. The Vesuvius rocks. <laughs> I'll take it. That was good. That was hard, though. That was hard. It was hard. This category is musical instruments. R. Okay, well, I'm going to go in reverse. Violin. I. Uh, e- e- I. This is the really an, one of the really hard ones. An Irish harp. <gasps> I. It is um, Irish. Yeah. It's Irish bazooki is the name <laughs> of the instrument that I found. <laughs> B, B, B. B, B, B. Um, a bugle. 
Uh huh. Yeah. G. Roy. No. Oh, Roy G. Why did you choose G. to do this okay. backwards if you can't do it? I don't backwards, know because Tommy. I came up with violin first. G. G. An instrument that begins with a G. There's a couple of them. There's a percussion instrument. Yeah. A guitar. Yeah, and a guitar. Why? This is another. Why is the other super hard one? Oh. As always, um, young children's bones. Yeah, you'd clang them together. It's a part of the percussion section. <laughs> a yo-yo. No, <laughs> a musical yo-yo. I'm just going to give this to you. There's one called a Yun Lo and another called a Yang Chin. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Oh. Oh, okay. Um, uh, an organ. Uh-huh. And R. R, a Rumpelstiltskin. Um, <laughs> a Rumpel Foreskin. <laughs> <laughs> Um, r- a r- a rack of lamb. Um, a there's okay. a couple here. There's a percussion one. I'm just way too. I'm too tense. I gotta relax, relax, relax. Um, there's also one that's like similar to a clarinet, but like the child version. A rutabaga. Oh, a recorder. Yeah. What's the what's the uh, one in percussion? A rain stick. That is like a hippy dippy. I'm stoned. I don't classify that as an instrument. It's. A, I mean, they actually use them. It actually. It's a great sound. Yeah. It is a great sound. It's. It's a real musical instrument. And then the other G one that's a percussion instrument is a Glockenspiel, which I Ooh. love. Glockenspiels. Glockenspiels are great. Just being able to say Glockenspiel is musical. Totally. Totally. Glockenspiel. And listeners, if you're not super familiar with Glockenspiel, like imagine the Harry Potter soundtrack. Bum, bum, ba-dum, bum. That was played by a glockenspiel. Hey, it's your friendly neighborhood producer, Jackie. We hope you're enjoying Ask Your Gay Uncle. If you'd like to ask a question for Tommy and Ben to answer on the podcast, leave us a message at 512-981-7332. Or you can email ask at askyourgayuncle.com. You can find us on Instagram at askyourgayuncle or Twitter at AYGU podcast. Thanks for listening. Go ahead and ask your gay uncle. Walter Nagel, thank you so much for joining us on Ask Your Gay Uncle. What an honor to have you with us. That's that's uh, very nice. Very nice of you to say that. I'm not sure I... <laughs> the, H, the dreaded H word. <laughs> it's very nice to be on. I, I'm really not sure where to start because you have such a rich story and a deep connection to the civil rights history. It's hard to know where to begin. But since this is LGBTQ History Month, I'm wondering if you would use that as your lens as you tell us about your childhood, uh, your coming out, how you ended up in New York, and um, eventually meeting Bayard. I was born in 1949 in Northwest New Jersey, uh, all white. I was raised as a Roman Catholic. Uh, and this was a time when gay people were still viewed largely through a very, shall we say, dark lens. Um, The only information I was seeing at the time was stuff that appeared in magazines, which really painted a very grim and kind of dismal picture of gay people, particularly gay men. Uh, We were all supposed to end up as alcoholics and lonely and unhappy. But it was also a time, you know, moving into the mid 60s, when people were starting to talk about liberation. Uh, breaking away from the stereotypes and the confines and the conservative norms of the of the fifties, and so you had sort of dueling uh, 
dueling narratives there. And people were seeing challenges to these ideas and challenges to the system in general. And I think um, largely because of the African-American struggle, the movements that came later, the women's movement, uh, LGBT rights movement, all kinds of movements really modeled themselves on the work of Dr. King, of course, and certainly Bayard, who was a tremendous influence on Dr. King. Now, at the time I was in high school, uh, I started high school about three weeks after the March on Washington. Bayard was very prominent in the civil rights movement, but not so well known outside of that. But the march in 63 changed that and he became much more of a public figure. So I was you know, reading about him in the newspapers about the civil rights movement, but also about the peace movement. And there were references to him being homosexual on occasion. So I thought, well, gee, this guy has the values and the interests that I have, and he's also gay. So, you know, this is all to the good. So in 1977, after being in New York for seven years, I had decided that I wanted to move to San Francisco. I had visited a few times and, you know, it was kind of being heralded as a, a Mecca, especially for gay males and a, a place of liberation and openness. Not that New York wasn't that way, but, you know, San Francisco was different. And were, you, were you out at this point, Walter? Out. Yeah, uh, I know. It's, it's a, it can be a gray <laughs> thing, right? <laughs> well, I was certainly dating people. Um, I took uh, my, my first, what I considered to be my first boyfriend, uh, home for a mm-hmm. weekend with my parents. Uh, that would have been in 1970. Can you know, we I, just do a little parenthetical pause here? So I'm imagining you bringing a boyfriend home to your Roman Catholic family. How, how was that received? Well, it was not just the a boyfriend, it was a black boyfriend. Wow. <laughs> in in wow. an all white town. <laughs> and this was, this was pre-Bayard. Um, but, you know, for uh, all practical purposes, they appeared to be fine with it. There were no nasty comments made. Certainly my mother was very welcoming and accepting. Uh, my father maybe begrudgingly so. Uh, but, you know, I didn't walk in and introduce him, you know, this is the man I'm sleeping with. I introduced him as, you know, a good friend that I worked with in the city and I think my, my, parent, my mother certainly n- knew that I was gay. I think, um, you know, I didn't have a long history of dating girls in high school or mm-hmm. after high school. So I don't, you know, it wasn't like I formally came out. I, I detoured you back to your family. Um, you were saying that it was 1977 and you were thinking of moving out to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, uh, on a very warm day, we were having an unseasonably warm week in April of that year. Um, I was on my way to a newsstand in the Times Square area, and I was going there to pick up San Francisco Chronicle, just kind of scope out what was happening on the job scene and apartments and things like that. And while I was waiting on the corner of 42nd Street and 7th Avenue, uh, this very tall, attractive uh, man was you know standing next to me waiting for the light and we looked at each other and lightning struck and we mm. started talking and you know I went ahead and got my paper uh but never really made it out to San Francisco <laughs> that's funny so it was very much a, a kismet meeting standing next to him yeah you could say that and then your paths crossed and you just entered into the 
world of this civil rights giant. Can you um, maybe do the same that you did for yourself, for Bayard, so that our listeners have an idea of his trajectory and, and how he ended up standing on a street corner next to you? Well, when you raised the question earlier about our experiences uh, sort of coming out, it occurred to me that it was really quite interesting because we would have been talking about Bayard in the mid-20s, late-20s of the century, of the 20th century, and you were talking about me in the 1960s, which of mm -hmm. course was supposed to be much more liberated. And Bayard actually in some ways had it easier. Um, he was a member of the Quaker faith, and Quakers basically believe in uh, ex accepting who you are and acknowledging who you are and being truthful and honest. And so Bayard came out to his grandmother at a you know, relatively early age, I think it was maybe 14 or 15, uh, you know, just discussing his attraction to other guys at school. And she was very accepting of it. Wow. She just, uh, you know, she suggested that he'd be cautious about the company that he kept, which I think is something that any parent would, would say to any child. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, she was concerned. I mean, this was a, a very different time. So, you know, he needed, he needed to be careful. And you said you grew up in an all-white town in, mm -hmm. in New Jersey. What was um, Bayard's town like? That town, Westchester, Pennsylvania, uh, very close to the Mason-Dixon line, uh, had um, underground railroad stops within the area. But even though it was a northern town, you also had uh, very active Ku Klux Klan chapters in the area. So, and some of whom would march through the town of Westchester on occasion in their robes. And uh, Bard went to a segregated elementary school, but his high school was integrated. So it was, you know, you got kind of got mixed messages, I would say, about race, about racism, about racial equality at the time that he was growing up. Uh, but he was an outstanding student. He was brilliant. He was good looking. He was a very talented athlete, uh, wonderful singer. And so his talents kind of pushed him, pushed him forward, I guess you could say, in the school. Even though he was one of the top students and spoke at graduation, he was not offered any scholarships at all to any of the local colleges. And, you know, most of the white kids at that level were. Uh, his, his grandmother was uh, raised in a Quaker household. And so she was the one that really instilled in Byard uh, the you know, the belief in the oneness of the human family and the equality of all people and, you know, speaking out against injustice. So Byard started doing that while he was in high school. He was arrested at the uh, local movie theater, the Warner Theater in Westchester, because he refused to go and sit up in the balcony. So that was probably his first arrest. And that was, I think, about age 16, maybe 17. Uh, so by the time he got to Wilberforce University, uh, a couple of years later, he had a strong sense of standing up for yourself and standing up for injustice. And it is reported that he uh, was unhappy with the quality of the food at the university and that he organized a strike. And that uh, that was the reason why he was asked to leave. So where did he end up after um, being asked to leave school? At Cheney State. I think he was at Cheney for about two or three years. But he got involved in some uh, gay activity and because of that was asked, was asked to leave. You know, they didn't get very specific in the reports that were, were written down, 
but I think it, I believe it's referred to something as um, lack of moral character or something like that was the reason for his dismissal. But Cheney presented him with an honorary degree posthumously. I received it, I believe it was in 2012. Hmm. So I guess at that point, all was forgiven, perhaps. Where are we time-wise? Is this the late 30s, early 40s? No, this would have been mid-30s. Mid-30s. In the research that I've done, I know that he refused to register for the draft for World War II. Um, Would you just talk us through that? Well, there's a little bit of background. Um, Bard came to New York City in 1937, and he was teaching dance temporarily. At the same time, simultaneously, he, he was... He had registered for classes at the City University of New York. City University at that time was a hotbed of political organizing. He joined for a brief time the Young Communist League and mm-hmm. worked as an organizer with them. And when Hitler invaded uh, Russia, the Young Communist League told Bayer to stop organizing. He had been organizing on behalf of uh, anti-racist work, um, anti-Jim Crow work, especially in the military. Um, and, you know, being a pacifist, being a Quaker, he was against, against the war. Mm-hmm. But when Hitler, uh, when Hitler invaded Russia, the CP changed its line and they asked Bayard to disband his uh, activities and, and support the war effort. And of course he refused to do that. And so he went to work for an organization called the Fellowship of Reconciliation. Uh, which was at that time a Christian pacifist organization, a Christian anti-war organization. Mm -hmm. Because of his religious beliefs and his membership in the Fellowship of Reconciliation, he refused to register for the draft in World War II. And as a result, he was charged, um, you know, with violation of the Selective Service Act and was sentenced to three years in the federal penitentiary. Wow. But Bayard, being who he was, kept, with, kept up with his activism. You know, federal penitentiaries at that time were largely segregated. And Bayard felt that this was an injustice and organized to have uh, the dining halls integrated, recreation wow. areas, the library. You know, he was always coming up with ideas to promote racial equality, even behind bars. And as such, um, it made, a, made him a bit of a thorn in the side of the Bureau of Prisons and the warden and people like that. And he was moved around a couple of times. And I think uh, when he was actually released at the end of the war, um, before I think before he had actually done three full years, I think they were uh, just as relieved to get him out as he was to be released. Amazing. So I want to fast forward a little bit to you both of you meeting on that street corner in New York. And I'm wondering in the years that followed that, how did your life, um, Walter, change entering the circle of like the civil rights giant? It sounds like you must have gotten swept up into into his life. Well, that is true to a large degree. Um, I would say that it didn't happen overnight. You know, Byron and I started dating and so I decided not to move to San Francisco we would spend our weekends together. And eventually, you know, after a year or so, I pretty much started living with him full time, but not work. I didn't start really working with him until the early eighties. He hired me to be his, uh, his administrative assistant, I guess you could say. Uh, we traveled together. I would accompany him on some of the missions he did 
on behalf of human rights in different parts of the world, working for the International Rescue Committee or for a group called Freedom House. So I really kind of became very much a part of his personal life, but also a part of his work. Was that ever complicated, bridging those two worlds, the personal and the work life? It really wasn't. It's interesting. You would, you would think that it might be, but uh, it really wasn't. I mean, Bard was a wonderful, uh, a wonderful person to work with and to work for. His staff loved him. Um, he was always very generous and forgiving and uh, helpful. So it wasn't, it was a much more relaxed atmosphere than you might find in some uh, other organizations at the time. I know that Bayard uh, ended up adopting you. My guess is many of our listeners don't know about that and would not understand why that was needed. So can you just take us through that process? Well, in the early 1980s, uh, we saw an article in a gay magazine about a couple that had tried to adopt each other somewhere out in the Midwest and they were denied, they were denied that right. And Byard was thinking about, well, I'm 37 years older than this guy that I'm with, and I'd like to protect his, his rights uh, as far as being my heir. And so once he saw that article, he decided to try and see if we could do that here in New York City. And of course, you know, adults adopting other adults was not a routine thing at that time. Right. So they had, to, they had to treat it as, uh, as Byard adopting a, a young child. They had to send a social worker to our apartment to sit down and talk with us, find out whether this was a suitable home for a 32-year-old man to uh, <laughs> enter into. Um, now, I think as soon as the social worker walked in uh, and kind of cased the joint, I think she said, okay, I know what's going on here. Uh, but she was very nice, very respectful. She, you know, she spoke to us together and she spoke to us each separately. And I think her concern, of course, would have been you know, is this some young, slick uh, hustler trying to take advantage of a dotty old man? Mm. And, you know, the converse is this, you know, some elderly man preying upon or taking advantage of some younger guy. And, of course, once she figured that out, that that was not the case, uh, she put the papers through. And probably a year or so after that, uh, we had a hearing and um, it went through. And was it clear to this social worker that the two of you were a couple? Yes, and so when, when she came to the house to interview both of you, you were, you were very open about that? Or did she just assume? Well, yeah, I, maybe I'm, maybe I'm uh, reading a little much, maybe I'm reading too much into it. Hmm. She didn't say to us, I know what's going on, but I'm not really sure how many other ways you could interpret it. Yeah. Uh, frankly. You know, I mean, of course, anybody, anybody that knew anything about Bayard knew that he was a gay man. So for, for you and Bayard, as a couple, this was a big step, a legal step. I mean, was for, for in your relationship, did it almost feel like, like akin to a marriage of some sort? It was, yeah, certainly. My mother had to dis, officially disown me. Um, wow. Under, you know, with the understanding wow. that this is, you know, this is just a, a, a legal thing. You know, we're not going to stop loving each other or anything like that. Right, right. Um, so, she, you know, she was involved in the process. Given that, um, you know, we still weren't afforded all of the, the rights that a married couple would be afforded. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the right uh, to oversee his care, were he to become hospitalized or infirm, 
mm-hmm. uh, which was, you know, an important thing at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the right uh, not to be sent out of his hospital room by some fa- quote unquote family member showing up who he might not have seen in 30 years, you know, ordering me out of the room, you know, those kinds of, we were able to avoid that kind of thing. And uh, one of the authors of one of the biographies, a fellow named Daniel Levine from Bowdoin College, uh, referred to our, our relationship as a marriage. This, you know, in all, in all practical terms, this was a marriage. He used mm-hmm. that word. And this was in 2003, I believe, when his book came out. So having been part of the civil rights movement and living with a civil rights hero and being married to a civil rights hero, can you talk about Bayard's push for nonviolent protesting? Yes, but I, I feel I should clarify first. I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't call myself a part of the civil rights movement, and certainly in terms of the African American movement, merely because I was, you know, I was too young at the time when it was really at its peak. I was, you know, in high school, and you know, reading about the movement was really where I got my interest in and my foundation in the philosophy of nonviolence, and of course, Bayard. Uh, because of his background and his influence within the movement, and especially on Dr. King, was sort of a leading light. And was there a lot of disagreement at the time? Forgive me just because I'm not very familiar, but was there a lot of disagreement at the time uh, whether protesting should be nonviolent or or more aggressive? Serious challenges, I would say, started to occur in 1965, 1966. Up to that point, the movement had been mostly nonviolent. The boycotts, sit-ins, you know, they were all based on the philosophy of nonviolence, either through the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which Byron helped to found, or through the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which of course has the word nonviolent right in its title. But actually, interestingly enough, when progress was really being made after the March on Washington, when you had the 1964 Civil Rights Act passed, and the 65 Voting Rights Act passed, that was really the time when people started challenging nonviolence. You know, you had the deaths of the free civil rights workers in uh, the summer of 64, Freedom Mm -hmm. Summer, Uh, and you had the rise of some younger... uh, You had the rise of younger activists, let's put Mm -hmm. it that way. Mm -hmm. I I was a little hesitant to use the word militant because... Mm -hmm. You could be very militant and be nonviolent. Dr. King was militant, Bayard was militant, but they were nonviolent. But you had younger activists, uh, people like Stokely Carmichael, H. Rapp Brown, starting to question the um, effectiveness of nonviolent protest. Uh, it's interesting that you said that the what came of the nonviolent protesting sort of paved the way for the discussion of more militant protesting or more aggressive protesting. I'm wondering if you see any similarities between that debate and what's happening today with the Black Lives Matter movement and press coverage of peaceful protesting versus more aggressive protesting. I would say from what I know and from what I see, uh, you know, 99% of the protests that have involved Black Lives Matter people have been nonviolent. But again, at the same time, there are younger activists who are not necessarily committed to the philosophy of nonviolence. And sometimes they act out and, you know, it reflects on the larger movement because um, the larger society who wants to challenge 
the changes that are being called for, will use the violence as an excuse for condemning everybody that's involved in the movement, just as they, you know, just as they did back in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think um, it's, not, you really, it's not really useful in advancing the cause or the struggle. Any of the violence that's being uh, perpetuated or being focused on is a distraction from the changes and the challenges to the, to the structure that, that need to be made. Yeah. Well, it certainly gets a lot of media coverage, that's for sure. It soaks up a lot of attention. So do you think Bayard um, would still be advocating for peaceful protests now if he were here amidst the Black Lives Matter movement? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yes, he would be. Um, you know, I mean, what we're seeing now is basically what we saw, you know, 50 years ago mm. with, the, uh, with the Nixon campaign you know, a call for, quote, law and order uh, because of, and back at that time, you know, some of the violence and the rioting that was taking place in the streets. It's a tactic that's based on scaring people and on fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're seeing the same thing now, from, you know, from the Trump campaign. But, you know, Bard was all for law and order, but you get that through justice. You get that by having justice, um, not by... Um, promoting chaos, which is something that this administration is, is, is very adept at doing. Uh, and so I think we're seeing, you know, a, a replay of the same tactics that were used 50 years ago. And I think uh, hopefully people have caught on to that game now and we won't, we won't have a repeat of what happened 50 years ago. I'm wondering if you had a, a hope or a message to share with any young activists who might be listening and very impassioned today, uh, what, what might that be? Uh, in a very general, general sense, I would say, um, you know, keep your eyes on what you're trying to achieve, you know, and let your activism be guided by the idea of justice. And, you know, that means justice for everybody, not just for the people who feel that they're oppressed, but just building, building what Dr. King used to call the beloved community, not necessarily flipping what Bard used to say, you know, we're not here to try and flip top and bottom, you know, bring the people on the bottom uh, to lord over the people who are currently at the top. It's really about building a society of equality for all people. Maybe a more specific level, know what you're trying to achieve, um, organize the ideas, especially, you know, if you're doing it at the local level, you know, you, if, if you want people to come over to your side, you kind of need to give them a, a blueprint you know, what is it that we're looking for here? And in a given community, we're looking for, you know, perhaps a more integrated school board, a more integrated police force, reduction of um, police brutality, but, you know, specific to the community to give them sort of a list of what it is you want to achieve so that you can sit down at the table and talk about, well, how do you get there? You know, it's easy to say we want an end to racism or we want peace. Well, what exactly does that mean? in real terms. And I think Bayard was somebody who specialized in that kind of thing. That was why he was the consulate organizer. When they went to, Mart- when they went to Washington in 1963, they had a, very, a list of very specific demands. And of course they knew they weren't gonna get them all, certainly not overnight, but it was a starting point for moving the dialogue forward. Mm. Do, you, do you feel like Bayard has gotten the recognition that he deserves? 
yes. I mean, my, <laughs> my immediate reaction, of course, would be to joke and say, of course he hasn't. Uh, but no, he has. And I think largely it's a credit to the LGBT community. They have been the ones who have been lifting him up. Mm. Um, largely. Um, not exclusively, but largely. It's been very uh, uplifting, I would say, and very rewarding to have the recognition that he's achieved mm. now. You know, g- getting the Medal of Freedom in, in, in posthumously for him in 2013 was, it was a tremendous opportunity to heighten his awareness in the larger community. Uh, 2013 was a pivotal moment. It was the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington. Bard was the only leader of the march who had not gotten the Medal of Freedom. He had been uh, marginalized, you could say, or pushed to the side during his lifetime. And so for that to happen during that year, I think was, was, was very, very significant. Um, and the fact that I, along with uh, Tim O'Shaughnessy, Sally Ride's uh, partner, Sally Ride uh, received the posthumous Medal of Freedom that same year, and Tam and I were seated on the platform right next to each other. We were the first LGBTQ uh, people to receive award uh, posthumously for our, in memory of our partner. So it was a great moment for Bayard, and I think you know a significant one for the LGBT community. It's something that President Obama said in the speech when giving uh, the award uh, stood out for me. He said, Bayard had unshakable optimism and nerves of steel. And I'm wondering if you can remember a, a story that exemplifies that or how you saw that in him, how you experienced that in him. Well, he certainly had unshakable optimism. Again, I think that goes back to his early religious training. Um, he took a lot of hits in his lifetime mm-hmm. uh, from being imprisoned, even as a youngster, through his incarceration during World War II. Uh, for being arrested, uh, put on a chain gang in the late 1940s, being arrested numerous times during the civil rights movement and also on behalf of, of peace work. Um, and having, having some of his closest associates distance themselves from him mm-hmm. because he was gay mm-hmm. and because of the threat of exposure that they felt might make them vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking here specifically of Dr. King uh, in an incident that happened in 1960. And again, in 1963, Strom Thurmond stood up on the Senate floor and, you know, read Byard's uh, arrest record into the Senate record, called him a right. sexual pervert, um, among other things. But Byard always came back. He was very resilient. He might have been hurt for a couple of days or a short period of time, especially, uh, I would say, with the, with, with, with the King incident. Because they were, you know, they were close personal friends. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he felt let down, but he did not let that personal injury, if you will, distract him from what was really important—a mm. larger struggle. And so he would always figure out a way to, even if he was kind of pushed aside from the, you know, the front lines of the movement, he would find a way to get back in there, fighting in some way, shape, or form. So um, I think that was really a testament to his eternal optimism and, and, and his hope. What are you advocating for these days? So I think the really important issues now are economic justice. And, you know, in the immediate sense, securing voting rights and making sure that uh, 
people have access to voting, especially in this election. So since this is LGBTQ History Month, are there other LGBTQ heroes you'd like to mention, either past or present, that, that you feel need a shout out? Certainly. Uh, someone like Pauli Murray, who was very involved in the civil rights movement, African-American struggle, and who herself considered herself transgender back in the days when I don't know whether that was even a word. That's a new name for me, Pauli Murray. Yes, P-A-U-L-I, Murray. Uh, there was just a building named, named for her up at Yale University. She was an activist during the 40s and 50s in the African-American struggle, and she later became an Episcopal priest uh, and continued her activism went to Yale, I believe, law school. She may have been the first black woman to graduate from Yale Law School. Uh, and she's been largely overlooked. Um, actually, if I may perhaps um, make a shameless promotion Please <laughs> do. of a forthcoming film, which is not mine, but I believe it's a wonderful film. And it was, it's uh, made by one of the directors and producers of Brother Outsider, mm. Bennett Singer. But it's just coming out now, so to speak, and is making the rounds of mm. the film festivals, and it's called Cured, C-U-R-E-D, but it's about the struggle to have um, same-sex relations, homosexuality, lesbian, lesbianism, whatever you want to call it, you know, removed from the American Psychiatric Association's directory of illnesses. Right, which took place in the 70s, right? Yes, exactly, in the early 70s. Now, it does, it goes back in history and, you know, talks about LGBT history up to that point, but the main focus and direction of it is to talk about that movement and its ultimate victory. And within the film, you have people like Barbara Giddings, uh, like Frank Kameny, uh, Reverend McGora Kennedy. So yeah, so to, to, to keep an eye out for that film. I think it's an important contribution to the history. So listeners, look out for Cured. Um, we will provide links on how and where you can find that and watch it. Um, I do have one last question. Is there something else that you want to say, either about your connection with Bayard or about your life or his life that you want to share? Well, I, I guess I would say that, you know, I was very lucky to be a part of this great man's life, uh, to share a life with him for ten, the 10 years that we were together. Uh, I learned so much from him, uh, larger life lessons, but also lessons about uh, activism and nonviolence. Um, I would just urge people to keep, you know, in, in, in Bayard's tradition and using his values to keep fighting for a more just and a more democratic and free society for, for all people where equality is the norm as opposed to the exception. And I think that um, that was really Bayard's, Bayard's fight and that's something that he would want us to, to carry on. That's great. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, Walter. Thank you. Ask Your Gay Uncle is created by Tom Truss and Ben Palacios, with production support by me, Jackie Anders. Album artwork by Seth Shellhouse. Theme song and musical interludes by Ben Palacios and Dan Reuter. Special thanks to Matt Marr and everyone who sent us questions. If you'd like to ask a question for Tommy and Ben to answer on the podcast, leave us a message at 512-981-7332 or email ask at askyourgayuncle.com. Find us on Facebook at Ask Your Gay Uncle Podcast. More information at askyourgayuncle.com.